This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Hi, Cardinal fans. I'm Ozzie Smith. Corks one into right down the line. It may go. And you're listening to the Cardinals Insider Podcast. Go crazy, folks. Go crazy. Here's your host, Brent McMillan. Welcome to the Cardinal Insider Podcast. Glad to have you with us for another week. My name is Brett McMillan, and we are looking back on the 80-year anniversary of Joe Medwick hitting for the Triple Crown in the National League. So today I'm joined by his grandson, John George, a man that uh, lived with his grandfather, Joe Medwick, for quite a while. How, uh, how young were you when you joined his household, John? Well, my mom had been in the hospital for an extended period of time, and my sister, Wendy, and myself... Uh, stayed with my grandfather and grandmother uh, for on and off about two years. And what was what was your grandfather like? He was not playing at that point, but just tell us about the guy because we see the video, and he was like a lot of those guys in the, in the 30s, very serious, kind of focused, like to have some fun when he when he wasn't on the ball field. What was he like uh, in your experience as a kid? Well, uh, what I can tell you is, as he was a child of the depression and therefore took everything serious, every dollar he made, everything he fought for. And I think that was a product of everybody at that time. That, was a, that really reflected the Gas House Gang in itself. As I got to spend time with him, at that point, um, he was in his, his 60s and um, was going through a variety of medical issues, but was very relaxed and subdued compared to the person that uh, I grew up learning about later. Uh, very relaxed. We would go to movies together. Um, he liked to do that. And um, was always very serious about my studying. Um, there's a funny story. A, f- a few years back, we were going through uh, some of the oddest little items that he had uh, collected since I was given most everything to, uh, to be responsible for. And inside there was uh, an a seventh grade um, geometry test that had an A on it. And of all the things, he had folded that up and kept it inside one of his uh, batting instructor books that he would uh, gauge and keep track of all the minor leaguers at the time. So there was people like Keith Hernandez and Bake McBride and Hector Cruz and things like that, people I grew up you know, watching and, and thinking a great deal about. Uh, and there was my, my test, and I found that, like I said, about five years ago. So it was shocking that of all the things that he would have on the road with him was uh, a math test. Hmm. And then we did a TV story a little earlier this year, which people can check out at cardinals.com slash video. They just search for Joe Medwick. And, and I remember one of those things when I came out and, and talked to you about that is that like a lot of those guys from the 30s, he never finished school. Is that correct or didn't go to college at least? You're you're exactly right. Um, While I think on paper he was given a diploma by Carteret, New Jersey High School, um, given what we've learned and knew about him uh, back in the late 20s, 
he had a pretty difficult time with school. And my grandmother, uh, after they were married, spent a lot of time helping him become more engaged, more comfortable to talk, uh, his writing skills and things like that. So, so. Per- perhaps maybe uh, saving that geometry test, I guess uh, he was proud of you. That was, that was important to him that, that the people in his family really get that education. Very much so. I, I think from, from the very beginning and I think after his, his death, my grandmother made sure that, that if anybody wanted to go to school and, and achieve higher education, uh, she was going to make sure that that did happen. So you're, you're right on point when you say uh, it was important to him because uh, if I got a B in something, I can remember having the conversation, why didn't I get an A? So it was, it was very interesting. And again, it wasn't until my adult life that I understood what his educational background was to where mine was. Uh, he had a, a great athletic background, too. He, he had a chance to play. Was it at Notre Dame? He could have been with the Four Horsemen. You are, you're exactly right. Um, upon graduation of high school, um, and again, uh, his parents were, were struggling to make ends meet. It was, it was during the, the Depression. And um, as, as many people talk about, he tried to play under an alias in the summer after his uh, high school season uh, under Mickey King so that he could uh, get paid some money to send back home uh, to Scottsdale, Arizona, back to New Jersey. Uh, and, of course, it was found out later whom he really was. And, and, of course, he had to stop playing. And then it came down, does he accept a, a scholarship to Notre Dame or, in fact, does he go play baseball and be paid professionally? And as you know, he went on and played baseball. I'd say a pretty good choice. 80 years later in a triple crown uh, in a World Series in tow, that, that worked out well for him. It did. <laughs> John George is with us. He's the grandson of Joe Medwick here on the Cardinals Insider Podcast. Brett McMillan with you as well. Uh, you told me the story about how he got that famous nickname, Ducky. It really didn't have anything to do with, with baseball, but I found it pretty amusing nonetheless. Well, and I would have to say that, of course, it wasn't his favorite uh, nickname, but it was one that stuck the longest. Uh, when he was in the minor leagues with the uh, Houston Colt 45s, uh, they had to do a variety of things uh, players did back then, including uh, modeling. So there was a fashion show in Houston at a local country club, and the players were asked to dress accordingly in swimwear. That might have been appropriate in 1930, 31. And uh, as he was walking around the poolside during this modeling session, uh, several people noticed that he waddled like a duck. And, of course, Dizzy Dean was one of his minor league uh, teammates at the time, and so it was never forgotten as to that nickname. Uh, although he preferred muscles, uh, the ducky stuck with him until uh, the day he passed. What was his uh, relationship like with Dizzy? Uh, Dizzy gave him that nickname. He didn't like the nickname. Did he like Dizzy? Well, I, I mean, you know, Dizzy was there that day when, when the name came out. And, and as most players do, whenever they hear little things, they never let it go. Uh, there has been many discussion. Bob Bragg, uh, Bob Burns have told stories about how volatile the uh, players would be in the, in the locker room and, of course, uh, in the dugout. And there's a, that well-known story where uh, he and Paul confront my grandfather over a, a tough play. But the reality is um, there was always that, that camaraderie between them. Um, my grandfather and Dizzy remained friends until he passed, um, and my grandfather was there as a pallbearer 
for Dizzy's funeral. I don't think his family would have wanted him there if there was anything but uh, affection and and uh, good relations uh, between the family. Certainly one of the greatest eras in Cardinal history, the 1930s, produced the Gas House Gang, produced a, a world championship in 1934. Tell me when, when Paul and Dizzy Dean, two great pitchers, kind of got on your grandfather for that play. And, and you're referencing a botched play in the field. Your grandfather comes into the dugout. They give him a little lip as, as they were well-versed in doing. What what was his response to that? Because Joe Medwick was a tough guy, just like Dizzy and Paul Dean. Well, you know, my, my grandfather was known as a hitter, uh, was prideful of his fielding and his, his throwing. So there was a play where a ball did get by him. Uh, and, of course, Dizzy had the, the lead, and it was in the later part of the game. Uh, giving up that lead, uh, Paul and Dizzy came in to the dugout and confronted my grandfather about that play. Um, he turned to them as he grabbed a bat out of the rack and said, get out of the way or I'll split the two of you. As he went in, um, he hit a home run uh, that won the game, but at the time it just gave him the lead. He came back into the dugout and he supposedly spit on the shoe of Dizzy and said, now, Hold that lead. <laughs> uh, there weren't a lot of people probably that could have gotten away with that, but uh, Joe Ducky Medwick certainly is is one of them. We're talking with John George, his grandson, here on the Cardinals Insider Podcast. Uh, 80 years removed now from a Triple Crown. What does that mean to you guys as a family to know that not many people have done that since, and the National League has especially uh, – struggled to find more folks that could put up a triple crown like your grandfather did in 1937. Uh, it means a lot to everybody in our family. Uh, we have cousins that are uh, outside of St. Louis and, and in, in Florida as well. Uh, those are really the only living relatives at this point. And uh, everybody has pride in what is going on, um, that the fact that the Cardinals are, are kind enough to recognize this point. You know, there's been some very great players um in the American League that have won it, uh, I believe Frank Robinson, Carl Yaskrimski, and then Cabrera. Most recently. A, most yes. recently. So there's been three on the American League side and still none in, in the 80th year since he did it in 1937. So, uh, yeah, to say that we're excited, you know, records are made to be broken. And, and as, as tough a competitor as my grandfather was, I honestly don't believe for a second that he would have thought that that record would still be there today. You know, in the same token, uh, there's been a lot of talk about uh, his doubles record. Um, everybody's talked. I know uh, Carpenter in recent years has done really well as a left-handed hitter, uh, breaking the great Stan Musial's uh, doubles uh, season record. Uh, but for a right-hander or overall for the Cardinals, 64 doubles is still the record uh, not only for the Cardinals, but that stands as a National League record as well. And I think that one was in 38. So that one's 79 years not touched of 64 doubles in, in a season. One of your grandfather's little phrases was hits for buckos. In other words, uh, base hits for dollars, which, hey, that's not a bad philosophy in, in professional baseball, especially in that day and age where it was, was tough to get paid. The money was very different. What was it like hearing hitting, talking hitting, with him. You you never played pro baseball at that level, but I imagine when he's talking you through an approach, that's got to be pretty unreal in middle school and high school. You know, you bring up a, a great point. 
the one thing that he would would instill because he was the Cardinals minor league batting instructor up until he had his heart attack in 75 and he had certain things about the way he wanted people's hands body position and so forth but my grandfather's um, ba- basic swing and motion was very unusual uh, to say the least you know he had a great number of things that um, he expected in the basic form of any hitter. However, giving individuality, uh, a perfect example, one of his best protégés was Keith Hernandez, a very, very good hitter um, for the Cardinals, and, and of course then on to the Mets. Uh, but his style was completely different than, let's say, my grandfather who had a raised foot. There are some players that can do that and get power from raising their foot and putting it through. A funny thing happened um, and he showed me while he was still living, and I even used it when my son was playing baseball and I was coaching him. So we'll say that was 15 years ago. I had four famous baseball players in, in photography that showed their motion of how they swing. And while some would be up in the box or back in the box, some people would raise their foot. Some people would hold the bat high. Some would hold it low. At the point of impact, they were all driving the ball the same way, swinging ultimately the same way. So for him, what he instilled in me is that you can do a lot of different things, but you arrive at the point of hitting the ball in pretty much the same manner. And I think that hasn't changed even in today's game. Some of it's natural, too. I mean, it's genes, and and so you guys in your blood have something that I don't have that a lot of folks that are listening don't have. Pepper Martin, who's going into the, the Cardinal Hall of Fame later this month, his, uh, his daughter told me that one of her kids who never met his grandfather actually kind of almost imitated that swing without having ever actually seen him. Did you ever see that in, in your kids or maybe grandkids now where they do something and it goes, man, that, that reminds me of my grandfather? Well, I will, I will say this, um, and it was a funny story. Um, I do about half the things that I do in life left-handed and half right-handed. And I was a natural left-hander, as everybody in the family says, because I I bat left-handed and I play hockey left-handed, so forth. The the point being is that when he saw that I was a left-hander, he switched me to be right-handed. So uh, I throw a football with my left, but a baseball with my right. So it's a very odd situation. In, in seeing my son, he's left-handed naturally. I didn't have to do anything to make him be left-handed. My point is when he goes to hit, he picked up a bat and naturally started swinging right-handed and does everything right-handed. In that, um, the way he, when he was much younger, obviously he's an adult now, but when he was much younger, uh, he showed some signs of, of doing lifting his foot and things that, that I would have never taught him to do. So it's, it's uncanny. There is some innate abilities that we all get from our, our family, and we wonder how we get them. But I, I think you're right. It's genetic. He was laser-focused. I've heard you use that word to describe him before. And in an age where they definitely knew how to have fun in the 30s, especially on that 34 team, he was very locked in. Where do you think that that came from, that maybe he was – a little more serious than some of the other guys were finding time to to be when they were away from the field? That's that's a very good question. I would say to you this, um, having uh, gone up for some Carteret events in New Jersey, 
as recently uh, with my sister and her husband. And that's uh, his, his hometown. That's correct. Um, uh, about four years ago. And seeing what it looked like in 2013 or 14, I can only imagine during the Great Depression what that area looked like. And, and we actually walked to the docks where his brother was working after high school, who was a little bit uh, older than he was, his father, uh, and so forth. Uh, and as the story goes, um, my gr- great-grandfather, Mr. Medwick, would share his lunch with Joe, who in the summer might be training or doing something for sports. And because there wasn't a lot to eat, he would run up to the docks, which you could then see the New York Harbor on the opposite side, and he would share some of his lunch when his father really needed that nutrition just as much as Joe did. My point is, he realized how difficult life was going to be, and he needed to stay laser focused on what it is he was going to do. And if God gave him the ability to be a good baseball player, then that's what he was going to do. And he was going to do it to the best of his ability. Sometimes asking for, um, you know, a, a money. Um, and of course I know that led to some consternation between he and Mr. Ricky. And, uh, I think that was just normal. Everybody, if you gave your best, you expected to be paid in the best way possible. They actually negotiated a contract one time while Branch Rickey was shaving. I've, I've heard that story. Did he ever confirm that for you? Uh, no, there's no doubt about it. <laughs> uh, there are scenes in um, The Natural where Wilford Brimley is playing the manager, is shaving, talking to his player. It wasn't in the same context as what supposedly Branch Rickey and my grandfather were doing, that he would rather cut himself with a razor and dry shave than to pay my grandfather what he was asking for. So it, it, was, it was very funny that that should happen. And I was going through some documents recently uh, and noticed that in 1938, in the year of this big contract issue, the year after the Triple Crown, ultimately, Branch Rickey was the general manager and signed all the contracts. But it was actually Mr. Braden who signed the contract for 1938 because I don't this is my opinion. I don't think Mr. Ricky at that point really wanted to sign it. <laughs> but Mr. Braden, and that's Sam Braden, who was the uh, the owner of the Cardinals at that time. He he saw that triple crown and he wanted Joe Medwick back on his baseball team. Which who, who can blame him for that? That's right. Uh, another you know interesting thing about your grandfather's career, apart from that thirty seven season, which was great, he was involved in a very interesting moment in the nineteen thirty four World Series. The Cardinals would win that in seven games against the Detroit Tigers. They are up big in Game 7. Your grandfather goes in hard to third base. This game is in Detroit, and the fans didn't really like that all that much. Pick up the story from there with what happens when he heads back out to left field. Well, uh, it was his third hit of the game and his 11th of the series, which tied at the time most hits in a World Series uh, for any player. And as he was sliding into third base, he uh, supposedly spiked uh, Marvin Owen, who was the third baseman at the time. Uh, phantom tags were very common back in the 30s and 40s. Later, they did away with them, but that's what caused it. So as he got his glove to go back out into the outfield, uh, fans back then could carry glass soda bottles. They could carry cabbages because people would put cabbage on their head. If it was hot outside, it was a form of keeping themselves cool. 
um, just about anything you could think, since there was no restriction of what you could bring in back then, uh, was thrown at my grandfather when he got out in left field. Well, they pulled him back in so that they could clean everything up. He went back out to the outfield about 10 minutes later, and again, they started pelting him with everything. As the story goes, he went back into the dugout and grabbed a bat and said that he would go out into the outfield and take care of it himself. Of course, he was restrained from doing that. And ultimately, after about a 30-minute delay, Judge Kennesaw Landis, who was the commissioner of baseball at the time, called my grandfather and then, of course, the manager over and said, uh, we, we're going to need to remove him from the game for his own safety. My grandfather at the time was very, very upset because he knew that he would have probably had two more at-bats and could have broken the World Series record for hits. Ultimately, Dizzy was named uh, the MVP of the World Series, and, and who knows if he would have been considered for that. But I think getting removed and all the things that went on that day in Game 7 to ultimately win, I believe, 11 to nothing, uh, I, I think it bothered him. But uh, I'm sure he was glad. I have a picture of him arriving in the St. Louis Union Station uh, with the owner uh, at the time and Dizzy right there with Sam Braden in the middle. Um, he doesn't look very upset at that point, arriving back with a World Series. So uh, I, I think it all went in tow. But at the time, he was obviously very upset. And we're sitting here in John's office. It's a it's a great photo on the wall. Dizzy's kind of tipping the cap. They're on the back of a, a train car with a old-school Cardinal logo on the back. One of those really classic-looking moments from a, a great World Series that – Obviously, is uh, well, I'm not great at math, but what 83, 84 years ago, but still a great moment in, in franchise history and an exciting series overall that the Cardinals took in seven games from the Detroit Tigers way back in the day. Uh, besides, you know, winning the Triple Crown, besides what happened in that World Series, is there another moment or something else about your grandfather's career that? he really was proud of maybe that doesn't get as much publicity. Uh, you know what? I think the fact that, of course, he was uh, beaned twice, um, once immediately after being traded from St. Louis and going to Brooklyn, and then uh, two years later. Uh, of course, there were no protective helmets back then. And, you know, he finished with about 2,500 hits um, and came up short of that 3,000. And I know that Mr. Lang, a, a famous writer for the New York Times, uh, was a big proponent of my grandfather ultimately getting into uh, the Hall of Fame. And, of course, back then, even an automatic prerequisite besides 500 home runs was 3,000 hits. He lost two and a half seasons of his career uh, where he was injured for part of those careers. That kept him from, in other words, nine years in a row where he had 200 hits. So it's not unreasonable or more. It's not unreasonable that, that in two seasons he could have been at 3,000 if you take what he lost. So I know that was somewhat of a disappointment for him for not having got 3,000 hits. I don't think it would have taken as long for him to ultimately get into the Baseball Hall of Fame if he would have had 3,000 hits. And I, cause Because back then people just got in if, if they had a long, successful career, they did great things, if they had met one of those many prerequisites they got it. So, what were his feelings about being on the Gas House Gang? You know, we've kind of alluded to it that he was maybe a little more serious all the time than some of those guys were. They were serious on the field, the Dizzy Deans, the Pepper Martins, and so on and so forth. But 
I just imagine from just seeing pictures of your grandfather and, and understanding his approach to the game that maybe the shenanigans weren't always his, his favorite. How, how did he feel about that? You know what? Um, he established very strong relationships. As I said, he was still friends with, with Dizzy till he died. Um, most people are not aware that uh, my grandfather had a very close relationship with Leo DeRocher who ultimately was the player manager in Brooklyn when he was traded there in 1940. Um, Leo and, and, and Grace's wife were godparents to my mom and uncle. Um, so there was, there was a long-standing you know, uh, friendship that went deeper than just baseball. And that is one thing that I would say. The things that went on on the trains that, that uh, are depicted today on movies um, – there's, there's no question. The difference between then is that the sports writers were right there doing whatever was being done on those train trips <laughs> from city to city. Therefore, there was no way for them to write about the very things they were participating in. Today, there's a disconnect. Uh, the people that are reporting the news are probably not on those planes or they're not going out to the bars with them. It's, that would not be a normal thing. So I think today that's why we see uh, so much social media talking about what players' uh, activities are outside of it. But all the, the, the angst and things that are very serious during a ball game, I think go away when you have 25 people. Sometimes you might have the spouses on the trip, sometimes not. But you're in those very small uh, sleeping cars, on the trains, traveling city to city, playing poker all night, um, sitting up and, and doing whatever, drinking. Again, those were things that you did with your friends and almost seemed like your brothers. Um, and that was the relationship that you had because you guys were together eight and nine months a year every single day. I'm sure that you've heard some some great stories. Do you have any that you care to share or can share uh, that your grandfather told you about those guest house gang days? What was interesting um, my grandfather once told me um, uh, sometimes there were so many little quirks and things that would go on. Um, some people wouldn't sleep in the top bunk on the train. Uh, some people, um, if they were not hitting well, um, had people throw paper clips or pins around the bedside so that the people would pick it up for good luck. You know, you'd forcibly lay pennies uh, maybe as you were getting off of if somebody was not having hadn't pitched a good game or something. Somebody would throw pennies and somebody would reach down and pick up a penny for good luck. And of course, in the 30s, you'd pick up that penny. Yeah. You wouldn't think twice about it. So there was a lot of uh, little things like that. As far as uh, the drinking, the camaraderie, uh, I, I can tell you my grandmother shared a lot of stories um, probably not ones that I could share on the podcast. <laughs> that's okay. I, I understand. I have a feeling that that's uh, every time I run into someone associated with the Gas House Gang, which is a family member, usually that's the, the way that it is. There's some great stories. We just can't always tell all of them, but a fun era in Cardinal baseball nonetheless. Uh, you've got a great story about how your grandfather proposed to your grandmother. I've, I find that one to maybe be my favorite Joe Medwick story. How did he do that? Well, um, as, as the saying goes, my, my grandfather, the baseball player, married well. Um, my grandmother at the time had just graduated high school 
from Mary Institute here in St. Louis. And uh, at the time, uh, some friends and their parents went to a ball game uh, at Sportsman's Park. My grandfather made eye contact with, uh, ultimately later, my grandmother uh, and asked if he could see her sometime. Uh, he got her phone number uh, and, and then called to make arrangements. Uh, the only way my great-grandparents, the Hoytles, that, that started Sunset Ford Automotive, would allow uh, my grandmother to go was if my Uncle Harry, my great-uncle Harry, her younger brother, could be allowed to chaperone their time together, which uh, my uncle at the time, great-uncle, was more than glad to do, to be in the presence of a, a famous baseball player. So they went out uh, several times, and uh, finally, uh, after about six months of, of dating, uh, my grandfather wanted to propose. So he had arranged to have uh, one of the field people to toss him a baseball that had a wedding ring tied to it. So as he approached where she was seated, uh, sitting with her mom at the time, uh, a baseball was tossed of which she caught. She realized that there was a ring attached. And then, of course, uh, when she saw that, he walked over and he proposed. It's hard, probably hard to say no to in front of all of Sportsman's Park. Yes, <laughs> uh, which I don't think she Not ever that intended. She would have, yes. I don't think she would have, but uh, yes. And so uh, she's uh, pictured uh, at one point with uh, the baseball, uh, the wedding uh, engagement ring on her finger, and my grandfather standing next to her. So um, it was uh, quite the talk at the time. Like a lot of players, he ends up marrying a St. Louis girl and then sticks around. I'm sure that's part of the reason. But I always like to ask either former Cardinals or family members like yourself, why did he stay? I, I grew I grew up here, born and raised, full disclosure, so I understand why it's a wonderful community. But for people even in the Cardinal footprint that aren't from St. Louis but are fans, why did he choose to, to make St. Louis home? Uh, that's a that's a good question. I would say this uh, at the point when he had a family, um, and they were splitting time back and forth. After even when he was traded uh, to Brooklyn, they were spending much of their time in St. Louis, except during the baseball season. Um, once my, uh, even though he might have been playing for somewhere else before he came back to the Cardinals in '47. Uh, my mom and uncle were going to school in St. Louis. It was important to both my grandfather and my grandmother that they have a good education. So that was the, the, the stronghold that kept him here. Ultimately, then, uh, even until the day he passed away, he was living in the house where he got married. And, and that was in Sunset Hills, of course, and stayed there. Um, of course, was in spring training in Florida, and they would spend time there. But there was always a feel, even when he'd go home to see family in New Jersey, to want to stay here in St. Louis. And he's buried here, if that, that proves anything. So, Born in, in New Jersey, but uh, grew up in a way, I guess, maybe here, here throughout his baseball career in St. Louis. I would say that's fair. Uh, one of the last things I, I want to ask you, we've got John George here on the podcast. He is the grandson of Joe Ducky Medwick. We are celebrating the 80th anniversary of the 1937 National League Triple Crown. I think Hornsby, everybody would probably agree, one of the greatest right-handed hitters of all time. Stan Musial is a great all-time hitter. 
your grandfather doesn't maybe get as much due, but boy, uh, you start stacking up some numbers, especially from specific seasons. He was a great hitter almost in the same class in his best seasons. And you mentioned he came back in 47. Stan would have been coming up in 41. And it sounds like your grandfather liked kind of mentoring or checking out younger hitters. What did he think of a young Stan the Man Musial in the, the late 40s? Well, there was a camaraderie, especially after my grandfather retired, between Stan and Red. Um, they would hunt together. They would do things socially together. I have a picture uh, in my basement um, at uh, Red Channing's wedding. On one side of them is is uh, Stan and Lil. On the other is is Joe and Isabel with, with the Channings and some other players and family and so forth. So there was uh, obviously... Um, no question in my grandfather's mind, um, because there's many mutual items uh, amongst his things uh, that he had the utmost respect for Stan and his abilities. And in a way, you know, coming, I believe it was from Pennsylvania. Wasn't mm-hmm. it where Stan was Denora, from? Pennsylvania. Thank you. Um, a, a smaller town. And, and doing what he did, I'm sure my grandfather could see similarities in that way. Didn't come from a big program or anything else and made his way up. Mm-hmm. So... Uh, he had nothing but kind remarks for both Stan and, and, and Red, so always did. When you would be out with your grandfather later in his life and people would come up to him, or even when people come into your office here or just find out the relationship, I imagine they have to light up, as people do most of the time with, with Cardinal-related things. Do you got any favorite moments? You know, this is one of those things that, that I've talked to. Um, it's, it, I've got to be careful how, how I, I say this. In the last year before he passed, we were at the ballpark. Um, it was uh, St. Louis Cardinals against the Pittsburgh Pirates. And Willie Stargell came up to sign my baseball glove. And he was having a conversation with my grandfather. And at the time, I, I said, um, hope you win. Well, let's, let's just say that... Um, Seldom ever happened, but I got a quick check from my grandfather that let me know I didn't say the right thing. And I got a lecture that you always tell your opponent, good luck, but you never hope they win. And um, I, I will say it was it was stern and quick, and I knew that I had done wrong, but it was something I never forgot. Um, no matter what sport I played growing up the rest of the way, you wish somebody luck, but it, it's a game, and, and you take it seriously. And that's why they keep score. The final thing, and then we'll we'll let you go. When you think about your grandfather and and his legacy, both as a person, the the man that you know or knew away from baseball, and then the ball player too. When people think about Joe Ducky Medwick or Muscles Medwick, what is it that that you hope they remember as the years continue to go by? You know, I would give this analogy because I've had a lot of thought recently. Um, you know, we look at uh, Albert Pujols, and and while he is no longer here, when he was here, he was a very impactful player, and his numbers were beyond reproach during the time he played. If you look at 32 to 40 for my grandfather, proportionally to even Stan and his strongest years or Albert's, my grandfather had a tremendous impact on the runs scored, the RBIs, uh, home runs, every aspect of the game, not just in 37, but in, in those, those number of his, his strongest years. 
and I want people to to know that if you were to look at some of the best players of all time in Cardinal history, my grandfather should be considered right up there with those three or four greatest players. John, thanks so much for your time. We really appreciate it. It's been fun uh, via video and then here on the podcast just to reminisce about your grandfather 80 years removed from the National League Triple Crown. For John George, I'm Brett McMillan. We're glad that you've joined us today. If you want to check out other editions of the podcast, you can go to cardinals.com podcast or search St. Louis Cardinals podcast on iTunes or Podbean. We welcome you to review, rate, and subscribe through all those places. We come out every Tuesday. We'll talk to you next week. Until then, this has been the Cardinals Insider Podcast.